0: just like calm down with the zooms my brother
1: yeah it's a little jer- too jerky in the pilot I, I can see that yeah
0: yeah we-
2: we've recorded so many episodes where we trash McKay's direction he's never gonna <laughs> guest on this podcast now
0: it's probably never gonna happen <laughs> <laughs> he did, he did. Like, <laughs> discover Jeremy strong in the big short though so you know yes it's it's well, not that he has bad taste it's that he is he's just like n- not as interesting as an artist technically
2: yeah yeah i mean i'm yeah i struggle with it because i'm very sympathetic to the overall project like i mean the idea of vice or the idea of a big short you know i yeah find it compelling and i'm glad someone's doing it but uh yeah i i struggle with the filmmaking yeah
0: do you like do you like michael winterbottoms movies um i don't know how many of them i've seen generally yes yeah, I feel like a lot of his style is kind of taken from, like, I don't know if you watch 24-Hour Party People, which is, like, one of my favorite movies of all time. But I feel like a lot of the sort of style of the big short is very influenced by that movie. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Um, what,
2: is, is there anything beyond, like, the kind of documentary texture or the kind of there's the documentary
0: aspect? Yeah, yeah. there's the documentary texture, but there's it, there's also, like, a lot of the characters breaking the fourth wall to talk to you about the movie. Or like, you know, various people, because it's based on a true story, right? It's like occasionally they'll be like, oh, by the way, this guy who played the janitor in the last scene is the real person that the Hollywood actor is playing in that scene, you know? And then it will zoom in on the janitor or whatever, and he'll be like, actually, also none of that happened. You'll be like, I disagree that any of this happened. You know, like, so there'll be like, there's a lot of that kind of, you know, uh, uh, meta cinematic gamesmanship going on Right. And you know what that really sounds like to me
2: is the Wolf of Wall Street, of course.
0: The Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah, absolutely.
2: (laughs) Uh, So if you're just joining us and you probably are, uh, you're listening to... Uh, The RoyCast, the internet's still only succession podcast. Uh, Don't believe what you hear. Uh, My name is Brendan. I am joined, uh, as always, uh, by my co-host, Gabby.
1: Hello, everyone.
2: And today we are joined uh, by a very special guest, uh, Mr. Isaac Butler. Hello, Isaac. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's a thrill to have you here. Um, It's a thrill to have a professional podcaster in our midst. Yeah,
1: this is exciting. Yeah, thank you.
2: (laughs)
0: <laughs> finally
2: it's all coming true and yeah. we wanted to have you on uh, in particular um, I think not only because you are of course uh, as we are you know, an admirer of the program uh, but because you have this sort of specialty which is uh, Shakespearean uh, studies, Shakespearean drama and your yeah. podcast uh, Lend Me Your Ears is about the idea of you know, Shakespearean drama and the resonances
0: it has to you know, contemporary politics Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that is very much, you know, that is the angle of lend me your ears, which you can find at slate.com slash Shakespeare was uh, very much about trying to figure out how the plays that Shakespeare was writing were speaking to the politics of his day, which he couldn't do directly. I mean, it was illegal to, and there was a very heavy censorship regime. You know, every single play had to be read by this kind of bureaucrat called the master of Revels, who could suggest and by suggest, I mean demand, changes, or he could put the kibosh on the play entirely. So Shakespeare is not literally able to dramatize the political problems of his era, but he's obviously an artist responding to his era, just as all artists do, so those politics get in there. And so I was interested in sort of what learning more about the politics of his era could teach us about how his plays are speaking to the politics of our own.
2: And you know, succession is a show that is, you know, very obviously about characters who have analogues to sort of contemporary political players and power players in uh, the contemporary world. But it's also been explicitly compared to Shakespeare mm-hmm. and. It, and it kind of buys into that you know because it you know it foregrounds this idea of the conflict between this patriarch who uh, Logan who's I think often compared to King Lear who seems to be you know sort of a mad king is how he's sort of played up in the first few episodes although that that seems to change later on so it, it some of that is kind of built in and Cox is of course a Shakespearean actor who's played a lot of great Shakespeare parts including Lear on stage but I mean what do you make of those comparisons you know in general is that really warranted or is it just kind of you think window dressing
0: Uh, I don't think it's just window dressing, but I also find it, you know, the more that I study Shakespeare and read Shakespeare and read about Shakespeare, the more that I wonder, you know, what we talk about when we talk about something being Shakespearean. You know what I mean? And it's interesting to think of the other shows that have gotten compared, the other TV shows that have gotten compared to Shakespeare, which were all on HBO, right? Deadwood and The Wire are the two big earlier ones. There's a certain thing, and Breaking Bad to some extent, right? There I was not the only person I think who nicknamed that show, McMath. Um, You know, there's, there's a, there's a thing where once the cast is of a certain size and the characters are, you know, dynamic and complex and boldly drawn. And the acting is sort of of a sufficient, consistent caliber. Then we start talking about something being Shakespearean. And I do think succession is, is playing with Shakespeare in a bunch of different ways. For one thing, Um, Once you call the show succession, you're playing in a sandbox that, um, you know, that Shakespeare kind of built because like very few writers were obsessed with the theme of succession as much as Shakespeare Um, because for the, you know, a full decade of his writing career, um, England was in a succession crisis. Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth I, was too old to have children. She was getting on in years. She was going to die. And she had made discussion of who would succeed her illegal. And, you know, we think of that transition as going very smoothly. That, you know, well, Queen Elizabeth died, and then James I comes in. But there was a period of time where just, like, really actually no one knew what was going to happen. And if a succession, you know, if the if the passing of the torch from one ruler to another goes awry, lots of people are going to die. And so you see Shakespeare talking about this all over the place. I mean, obviously the history plays are basically entirely about succession. Richard II is about a kind of illegitimate succession where the crown is taken from him from Henry IV. And that sets off this series of conflicts that eventually gives us the War of the Roses and then eventually Richard III. Hamlet, we don't think of Hamlet as being a play about a bungled succession, but Hamlet is really a play about a bungled succession on some level. Uh, So is Julius Caesar. So is Macbeth. So is, you know, uh, other plays that we don't think of like As You Like It, which, you know, there's a duke that's been usurped by his brother in As You Like It. Uh, which we normally think of as a comedy about love in the the woods, but it's also about this sort of political problem. So I do think when you say, like, this show is called Succession, the chances are you're going to rub up against Shakespeare. And then you see, I think, Jesse Armstrong and his team of writers borrowing lots of different elements from Shakespeare plays and mix and matching them. The really obvious one is, you know, Logan as this kind of kinglier figure, right? That he has these kids... Who wants some piece of his estate? He's supposed to announce what's going to happen with that, and then he fucks it up. Which King Lear also fucks it up, right? And then by fucking that up, he sets in motion all of these things that in King Lear basically like literally destroy the world. But that is that has not quite happened in Succession yet. But I also think you know another touchstone for me with this is uh, the Henry the Fourth plays, and in particular Henry the Fourth Part One. In that, you know, one of the things that's happening in Henry IV, part one, is that you have this character of Hotspur, whose honor is impugned. And then once his honor is impugned, these two other figures, his uncle Worcester and his father Northumberland, push him towards causing this insurrection, which turns into this armed conflict, which they then lose at the Battle of Shrewsbury. And I do think there are elements of that actually with um, Kendall Roy. And with Stewie, and uh, with what is Larry Pine's character's name? I forget the great, great Larry Pine. Um, who Sandy, put, Sandy. Sandy
1: Furness.
0: Yeah, right. So Sandy and Stewie are basically like Northumberland and Worcester. And then in Kendall, you have this character who is sort of both Hotspur and Prince Hal at the same time. And you see them borrowing elements of Prince Hal, right? The, the ne'er do well who drinks, you know, in the bars and does drugs and hangs out with the wrong crowd is in there. But there's also this person. Who has this really wounded sense of pride. And then they add in elements of Hamlet on top of that, right? Because um, Kendall explicitly uh, quotes Hamlet, if I remember correctly, right? He says, uh, uh, more in sorrow than in anger when he's trying to fire his father. That's right, that's right. That's right. You know, so he's he's overtly identifying himself as Hamlet. So I think there's a lot of different ways that they're that they're playing with Shakespeare. The other thing that's like Shakespearean about this to me, the most Shakespearean thing about it is the way that what's going on in the society is shaping the dynamics between the characters. So in Julius Caesar, as the Republic is falling apart, you see the senators stop acting like good, small-R Republicans. They're, instead of declaring their aims publicly, they're conspiring privately. Instead of telling the truth and openly debating, they're lying and manipulating each other, right? And in succession, you see that happening with the Roys in that like this family, which has reached the very heights of capitalism, every relationship they have is defined by some ratio of like transaction to competition. Right. There is no relationship that doesn't exist on some, you know, grid of transaction competition because um, that's what capitalism does. It turns everything into, you know, it makes everything transactional and competitive. And you see that reflected uh, in the family. And to me, that's absolutely the most Shakespearean thing about the show.
2: the other thing I think of when you say that is uh, we've talked about the great performance that Peter Friedman, who plays Frank, gives on this show. And that's a relationship where he seems like the person who perhaps most genuinely and directly cares for Kendall in the entire series. But, you know, in episode nine, there's this very obvious tension between him and Ken because he's he wants Ken to do well but he also wants to be kept up to date about what's happening in the company because he wants to make sure he's taken care of right he's 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 always attached you know because of his financial dependency on the family
0: yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you know, he reminds me of... There's a character in Richard II uh, uh, named John of Gaunt who is the sort of... This guy whose sort of loyalty is to England above all else um, who has this kind of very famous deathbed speech where he says to Richard II, like, you're fucking this all up and you are destroying England and you're ruining it. Uh, and then, you know, Richard responds by taking his land. But this idea of, like, the loyal the loyal soldier who's caught between his different loyalties is is a very, very Shakespearean idea, for sure.
1: I think that's a really interesting framework you just provided for us, Isaac, aside from the, the comparisons, which are, which are fascinating as well. But we talk a lot about Succession being a show, about family, about drama, about people, um, less so than the, the politics and societal um, context that, you know sort of surrounds and circles his family and is inherently a part of the story and the show but isn't the story and the show itself and the way that the the creative team and the writers handle political situations that are that have to stay true and grounded and in reality but but they they resist the urge to sort of assign you know sort of direct analogs to any of these people or, or situations such that um you know, it doesn't become like a Sorkin type of situation. So I think that knowing that that's like a Shakespearean in nature is a very interesting way to think about it.
0: Yeah, I do. Yes, I do think that they are less interested as well. And I, And I want to preface this by saying I don't think there's anything wrong with this. You don't have to write everything like Shakespeare did. You know what I mean? There's, there's lots of different ways to write a drama, but I do think they are less interested in institutions than Shakespeare was. And they are less interested in, as you put it, you know, that surrounding context, you know, there's always some sort of bouncing off between the sort of individual behavior and the institution that surrounds them in Shakespeare's plays. And they're less interested in that, I think, than in using sort of the way this family behaves as a kind of metaphor for capitalism, I think.
2: Yeah, and there's there's moments in the show that I think are really thrilling, and I think in particular always of the ending of, uh, of episode six, where Ken has been exiled from the company, and he is standing in the road as what appears to be a terrorist attack or a supposed terrorist attack is playing out behind him, and there's this... Great sort of convergence of personal and you know, societal catastrophe that's happening right there. The show doesn't do that too much. It right. does generally. And I think especially in this episode, in the finale, ultimately reduce, you know, the larger conflict and the larger themes at play into a very personal, you know, one-to-one, you know, conflict and a very personal thing that's going on for Ken, it ultimately all reduces down to him instead of uh, reverberating outwards, as you might expect.
0: Yeah, and also, you know, to to, to be to be fair, uh, I think to some extent it's that the institution that this show is interested in is, well, the American family, but also this this company, right? Waystar, uh, Waystar Royco. Whereas in Shakespeare, it's usually like, at least one of the characters is actually a ruler or a nobleman or embedded in the government structure in some way, right? So the institution they're bouncing off of is the actual political institution. Whereas here, the institution they're bouncing off of is this company. I've always sort of felt like, you know, one of the weird things with the show is that like, I don't really care who runs the company, you know? Um, that's not interesting to me particularly. Yet I love the show, but like you know, it's just like it's just a big media company. But I don't. Yeah, I don't see a lot. Very yeah.
1: relatable, Isaac.
0: Yeah. I, yeah, I
1: feel that... the same exact way. I feel so uninterested in like the business architecture of all of this, yet I'm so enraptured by the show.
0: And I think that's what makes the show more of a satire than, you know, one of one of Shakespeare's plays is that, you know, in like a Shakespeare play, it's like, who rules is a big question. Like, what is the government going to behave like or what institutions work and how do they work and all that stuff? You know, those are meaningful life or death questions. And I think the show realizes, or I really think it realized you know, in the gap between the pilot and the second episode, that um, it's much funnier if it actually doesn't matter who runs this company, you know, that like, if that is just like the MacGuffin, um, I think that is actually how it is able to effectively satire this world Uh, or satirize, excuse me, how it's able to effectively satirize this world is that it's like, well, this thing that they're chasing after is totally ridiculous and meaningless anyway, even though it involves billions of
2: dollars. Yeah. And a big part of that, I think, is the contempt it has and how it recognizes that Ken's ideas for what he wants to do with the company and the direction he wants to take the company are, you know, just sort of rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic or whatever you want to call the metaphor. It's 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 very cosmetic. You know, he talks about all these new media ideas and buzzwords, but it ultimately, you know, the company's going to keep doing the same things.
0: Yeah. Maybe they'll pivot to video. Right. Right, precisely. Instead of buying buying local media, they'll hire a bunch of Instagram influencers.
2: Yeah. But I am interested in hearing you, Isaac, talk a bit more about, you know, your sense that the show kind of shifted direction or uh, even maybe simply just improved or got a better sense of itself as it went along and what you see those shifts as being. I think we've talked about some of them on this show, but I'm interested in your perspective on, you know, kind of what changed between the pilot and the second episode or between the pilot and the finale.
0: Well, well, can I ask, first of all, because y'all are so much more informed on this show than I am. Was there a significant gap in, in shooting time between the pilot and the rest of the season? Do you know? Like, did they shoot the pilot and then take a few months off, and then while well, it got ordered to series, and then and then do it? No, I
2: I, I don't think so. I believe okay. it was ordered straight to series oh, uh, from the uh, okay. from the scripts from the script stage.
0: Because to me, what's wild is I feel like there is actually, although. It's, it's in lots of little ways. I actually think there's like a big tonal shift between the first episode and the rest of the season in that I think there's a way in which in the rest of the season, it feels like the the sort of satirical angle is much sharper that it is just tonally feels more unified across the board. Um, whereas like in the first episode, I felt like I was being asked to care about who ran this company. And then it actually just became about this very different thing, which is just this family and, and, and their dynamics in particular, once it becomes clear that who is going to run this company is Logan Roy, that the, the odd thing about it, there's a sort of, um, Bait and switch makes it sound nefarious. I don't mean it that way, but there is a thing where like, you have a show called succession. And in the first episode, you know, first couple episodes, you have this guy who refuses to step down and then has a stroke, you know? And you sort of feel like, well, by the end of the season, Brian Cox isn't going to be on the show anymore. You know, like this season is going to be about jockeying for who's going to run it. And then at the beginning of the second season, that person will be in charge, you know, is, is sort of what they kind of set up in those first couple episodes. And that is absolutely not what happens. What happens instead is like, you know. Um, like some kind of God, (laughs) Logan Roy kind of heals himself by sheer willpower and takes back over the company, which causes a different kind of crisis. And I just think that's a really fascinating choice. And what, where that leads is to the show becoming like much more interesting in part because it feels a little less driven by its plot and more driven by its characters and these sort of weird, you know, um, directions they all want to go in and all the sort of unearthing, all the um, dirt, that is and rot within this company with the cruise line and, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. And so I think there's a I think they do a really interesting thing where they actually take the show in a very different direction from how it looks like it's going to go. And I have no idea if that was always the plan or not. Um, but I do think that kind of switcheroo they pull makes it a stronger and more interesting show.
2: I really want to get into some of the close read of this episode that we're going to go into. But before that, I have one more kind of like big picture question that I wanted to hear you speak on, which is uh, as well as being, you know, this uh, sort of a Shakespeare scholar, you, I think, have very strong ties to the New York City theater scene. Yep. Um, as does this show, multiple writers and actors on this show. In particular, I think J. Smith Cameron or M. Wyatt um, have very strong ties to the New York uh, theater scene. And
0: and Peter Freeman. Peter Freeman was the original Tata in uh, Ragtime. That's so great.
2: Um, So I'm just I I guess uh, what I would like to hear you kind of, you know, theorize is just what that kind of connection means. I I can think of like a couple of other shows, you know, one that springs to mind is the Americans drew very heavily from a pool of writers that had worked specifically in theater. What what it means that so many of these writers have
0: been involved in theater and that they drew from uh, that kind of pool for their acting talent as well. Yeah, well, I'll just say one blanket thing, which is like in the era of peak TV, everyone needs writers. And you have all of these playwrights who are trained, talented, and, and good at what they do. And there just aren't enough um, slots in America's theaters to program their plays and for them to make a living. And so you do have this thing where TV has swooped in and grabbed all of them. Like that's a kind of across the board thing that a lot of the secret of kind of what has happened during peak TV and what has kind of raised the median level of a TV show today is that, um, you know, playwrights who uh, some of them are very successful playwrights and some of them have been kind of, you know, locked out because, like I said, there's only so many slots to go around um, were were scooped up. You know, And I also think that just whenever your show is shooting around New York, you're going to wind up with a bunch of theater actors because they're in New York, you know? And so some of it is just that. But I also think that, like they have some amazing actors. I mean, particularly the three we were we were we were just talking about Jay Smith, Cameron, uh, Peter Freeman, and Arian Moyed, who I should say Ari and I've actually directed in the past. Uh, on stage in New York and is a wonderful actor and wonderful to work with and a sweet guy and I just couldn't be happier uh, uh, for him. And I think he's amazing as Stewie, right? Um, oh, well,
1: that's so nice. We, lo- we love him. He's been so nice to us. He's, yeah. he's reached out. He's listened to the pod. Oh, Arian's
0: great. Arian's great. I, I, I just can. not I love that guy. He's, and yeah. And like Peter Friedman and J Smith Cameron are, are, are veterans. They've been, they've been in all, all sorts of wonderful work. They're, they're, they're exceptionally great on stage. I think that in, but to speak more specifically to succession. Uh, and of course, Brian Cox, let's not forget is a great stage actor, Harriet Walter, who plays his um, ex wife. Yes. The, you know, is, is I've seen her on stage playing Brutus actually in, in Julius Caesar. She's a very accomplished, um, uh, Shakespearean actor. Even Kieran Culkin has recently had a lot of stage experience in Kenneth Lonergan's plays. So you know, I, I think that one of the things that Um, uh, particularly a show like Succession made the way it is where there's a lot of improvisation and the cameras are just kind of running all the time and it's sort of like like how Elaine May shot Mikey and Nikki, I guess, right? You know, you have like a bunch of cameras in the room and the actors are doing their thing and you're trying to cover all of it and try a bunch of different variations and everything like that. Um, You know, that means that you need to have an actor who can maintain a performance and stay in character uh, for a long period of time whether or not the focus is on that and in order to do that like the people who are best suited to doing that are people with stage training and experience because that's what you have to do on stage. You have to sustain a performance and you have to sustain it even when you are not the focus because you're literally there on stage and anyone could look at you. Uh, whereas film is very much about spontaneity. It's about capturing an individual moment, you know, uh, 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 the performance might be out of order, you know, so it's more about like plunging in and just being game and being right there. um, uh, um And, and so those are just, those are very different. Um, They're interrelated, but they're different skill sets. And so I think that is one thing that, that stage actors can bring to the, to the table with succession in particular.
2: I guess we should kind of dive into the episode. I I almost want to jump straight to the Kendall stuff, but I know that's not fair because there is other stuff that happens in this episode that we want to talk about. Totally. Um, I I do definitely obviously want to touch on what uh, is happening with Connor in this episode. Yeah. Um, We want to
1: talk about people who aren't in political institutions like Isaac was talking about.
0: Connor (laughs) might be our chance. (laughs) So we can outlaw drama. (laughs)
1: Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Does drama change minds?
0: Really? Oh my god, that scene. Everything about the prostitute actress character. I mean, I feel like, I really feel the presence of playwrights in that character. Yeah, You know, that she's trying to do it okay. to fun she's, plays yeah, she's cause, good. Because the economic model of theater is so broken that, of course, she has this kind of belief that, you know, art can change the world and, et cetera. <laughs> yeah, but not really, as Connor yeah, says. Yeah, but not really. <laughs> Gil Evan. Gil, yeah, Gil Evis. Huge skeptic. <laughs>
1: Socialism, yeah. Oh. Huh?
2: <laughs> yeah, the last I think that's the last we see of Gil in this season actually is that scene where he just like he's confronted by Connor and just like kind of stammers and goes, "Uh, I'm going to I'm going to leave." And Connor it <laughs> goes like he crumbled under scrutiny. He's yeah, lucky he that it wasn't intellectual
1: scrutiny.
0: <laughs> right, which is amazing, but all he did was just like sort of bark a bunch of random yeah. Bullshit. That like, and, that, and then he was like, I don't want to be rude to you. I mean, the other thing is that of course what Connor doesn't know is that the fix is already in on Gill. Like Gil doesn't need to alienate Connor because he's already made a deal with Logan, right? Right. Um, and so there's there's just always I mean, Connor is such a deliciously constructed character because he, you know, is one of those people who, because he is rich, thinks he is brilliant. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you the know. the bog standard rich libertarian psycho <laughs> who lives in the middle of the desert, cooking up weird schemes. You know, like like how Peter Thiel wants to drink young people's blood or whatever it is. He right,
1: wants exactly. Allegedly,
0: yeah. please don't sue me into oblivion, Peter. Yeah, I mean everything about him, like even the way his beard is sculpted, seems <laughs> like a, you know, like a a perfect satirization of that kind of Burning Man libertarian.
1: Right, and the vests.
0: <laughs> the vests. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And Connor has a lot of great moments in here. There's the part during the photo shoot where he threatens to just um, pull his pants down and take a shit on the floor. (laughs) If um, Willa isn't in the photo because she's the love of his life. Each one of these kids has, you know, the certain levers they're willing to pull to get what they want. Right. And um, Connor in some ways is the most relentless about that. He just wants so few things. He wants Willow to be married to him and he wants to be, I mean, they're big things. He wants a woman who doesn't love him and is sleeping with him for money to be his wife. And he wants to be president of the United States. But like, because he doesn't want that much, he's willing to do absolutely crazy things to get them. I think that's part of what makes him so compelling. Can I just
2: say that the storyline I would be most interested to pursue about Connor next season is not his presidential campaign, but his Napoleon podcast?
0: (laughs) Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. That would be amazing. Or just like some forum where he starts talking about his ideas that the public can't handle. I mean, the weird thing is, is that like the intellectual dark web wasn't a real thing. I feel like during succession, like as it has become now, but he sounds like such an IDW guy.
2: You know, the yeah, exactly.
0: Or sure that they shouldn't masturbate or whatever. Yeah. Like yeah, he, I bet can bet you, imagine him on Joe Rogan. I bet you that Connor has Jordan Peterson on speed dial.
1: Oh, my God.
0: <laughs> but, right, because you have Eric Bogosian playing the Bernie Sanders analog, right? So you need, like, a Jordan Peterson mentor to Connor, where they can sit around talking about lobsters all day. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the Connor stuff is really funny, but
2: the other kind of uh, comedic plot line in this episode is what's, is what's happening with Roman. And I know, I think, Isaac, we've talked about how... The show seemed to not quite figure out or kind of change its mind on what it wanted to do with Roman in this season, but it hits upon, I think, a very good use for him in this finale, where his story, I feel, is sort of a parallel or an analog to
0: what happens with Kendall in the A-plot. I'm just laughing, sorry, I'm just laughing at the moment where Roman is trying to play it off like everything's fine while his phone keeps making noises because he keeps <laughs> getting phone calls and emails about the, the, the rocket exploding. Yeah, and he's are like, no, uh,
1: like, how did it go? How did it go? Be-deep, 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 be-deep. Like, oh, it's just, it's
0: just fine. It's fine.
2: Yeah, very very relatable, ignoring your phone blowing up at
0: work. Right. Right. I mean, like, that's, that's one of the examples where, like, every now and then Succession can, like, kind of use a kind of farce or sitcom contrivance, where, like, the character is trying to play off something that is being revealed at the same time. Um, but because of sort of the way it's filmed and everything like that, it, it manages to kind of renew it and make it feel fresh. I just giggle. Every time I think about that,
2: the instantly gifable moment where Roman just kind of watches the launch explode <laughs> in total silence, tucks his phone away, washes his hands, and just strolls out like nothing happened.
1: Well, I mean, it's totally. so funny because it's been the only thing that he's been focused on for like three episodes now. Like he's been like when he was picking up Kendall and Austerlitz, you know, three episodes ago, he was dealing with it you know he's been like this has been his big thing like this is what's going to make him seem valuable to dad and of course like it just turns into this utter disaster i mean he's salvaged by the fact that nobody actually died we just two thumbs
0: just, and an arm
1: right just just some thumbs <laughs> nobody's going to be upset about some thumbs yeah. Um but yeah, I, I mean it's just I feel like it, the
0: satellite
2: exploding is still going to be very major news.
1: Oh, I think so too. I mean, he he's but yeah, I mean it's just hilarious because like again, Roman just trying to carve out his place in this world and not yeah. fit for it.
0: <laughs> I think how they end up playing the satellite launch in the second season, like what they end up doing with it will tell you a lot about tonally the direction the show is going to go in. You know what I mean? Like is this a show about the real life, the real world consequences of these, right. you know, these people or is it Like, or, or like what Veep would do is that, you know, Pat and Oswald will walk in and swear a bunch and the, you know, and and then they would sort of, is it going to be a thing? Is it going to be a thing? And then it would turn out to not be a thing. And the fact that it wasn't a thing would be part of the satirical point they were making about that world. You know, I feel like Succession could do that, which would be totally valid and great. I love Veep. Right. But like the question will be like, what do the real world consequences of that end up being? Just like with the cruise line, which is like the the
1: death pit. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Chekhov's cruise line. You know, at some point, that's going to come back and, and seriously yeah, bite the pack.
1: that will probably yeah. be more explosive because of, of Greg's leverage in the whole situation.
0: Cousin and... Greg. Cousin
1: Greg. He well, you just... fuck.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, they
2: destroyed all or most of the evidence. So the question of, like, how much could come out, I think, is still in doubt. It just depends uh, how securely Greg is keeping those uh, those key documents in a, in a, a deposit box somewhere.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, I think
2: judging from the information that has trickled out about season two, it would seem that there are consequences for Roman at least at the company. Is what I'm is what I'm right. uh, surmising. Um, I don't know about in the real world, but yeah, this whole satellite launch is this uh, key to this. This other thing that's happening with uh, Roman in episode nine where uh, his mom just like offhandedly says that he should marry Tabitha and he immediately proposes to her. And he's been <laughs> obsessed with this satellite launch as this way of validating himself to his father, who not only has contempt for him, but seems to barely sort of pay attention to him. And uh, the way that he very just sort of like earnestly uh wants people to you know be talking about him and thinking that he's doing a good job is very very very, very kind of pitiable and sympathetic i think like the the moment in episode 9 where uh, uh, Ken jokes that he and Logan were talking about Roman and he goes really what did you say yeah.
0: yeah 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 absolutely i mean i think everything everything with roman is is so desperate there is this sort of thing where it's like well yeah, Richard III makes this point very early on in 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 the in the titular play, Richard III, where he says, you know, because essentially he says, like, because I'm not, you know, because of my deformities, because I'm I can't be a romantic leading man, I will play the villain. You know that he's just like I am ill suited to that role, so I have to play this role, and I'm going to play this role. And you can see that a bit with um, Roman's sort of um, desperate attempts to make cruel jokes about people. Which usually don't work, you know? They're usually kind of these like flop jokes. It's like he wants people to be talking about him and he wants people to care about him. He wants people to be like thinking about him. But he knows on some level that he's not good at anything. And so the way he's going to get them to do it is by being this kind of, by playing into the stereotype of the kind of um, loose asshole. You know? Absolutely.
1: Yeah, it's like it's like the pilot and and the the scene that turned so many people off from the show because they thought it was just going to be um, you know, rich people flexing without any sort of like examination behind it.
0: Right. You mean the baseball scene with the, exactly, with yeah, the check. Yeah. 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 Um and um yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of that kind of uh stuff that he pulls and they slowly reveal other things like we don't exactly know what the issue is with why he won't have sex with women or maybe at all you know um but so like we get this sense that there's this like other secret roman and that that but he doesn't want us to have access to that so he's going to kind of cover that up with as many sort of crass stunts as he can come up with
1: oh yeah i mean we've we've talked about Roman's psychosexual issues. And we just did like a deep dive in our Austerlitz episode and kind of speculated, a l- not too much, but a little bit about, you know, whether or not Roman was abused. He does make the joke um, to Connor about, you know, Connor sexually abusing him. And, you know, it's, you know, it's clearly a joke, but that whole episode sort of tapping into something, you know, ancient. And I think maybe there was some sort of, subconscious hint that might have been dropped there i don't know if we're gonna get anything more into roman's past and why he has these these intimacy issues um but you know i think i think it's i don't know it's very plausible to me that he was sexually abused maybe that's a little bit like you know too irresponsible with my speculation but i mean it, it would explain a lot
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I also think is fascinating about this show is that there's actually, like, a lot of things that they don't, that they reference without explaining,
1: um,
0: which is one thing I really like about it. Like, they don't over-explain too much. You know, like, uh, I still don't know that I 100% know what a bear hug is, but kind of like the jargon in a Michael Mann movie, like, I don't really need to know. I can
1: explain it to you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but then there's, there's also the, um, there's also, um... Shiv talks in this episode particularly to Wamsgams about how he came along at a really terrible time in her life. Yes. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And I feel like in a lesser writer's writing room, she would then have a monologue where she explained what that time was. Right. But it's just like, I mean, he's your husband. You He knows what the time was. You don't need to like expose it to someone who already knows that information, you know? Yeah. Um, and I feel like, uh, like, uh, part of me is like, well, hopefully Roman sexual hang up thing is never explained. Right. You know, yeah, like we, be... we,
1: we kind of feel the same. Well, we we talk about this a lot about how, um, you know, nothing is belabored and, and we sort of get pieces of, of their history. But, you know, we, we don't really ever fully know what to trust, what to believe. We don't get flashbacks. Yeah, I mean, I think that comment, particularly with Shiv in the little number scene when she finally confesses to Tom, and she says, I needed you when we hooked up. I was in a very bad way. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that she's referring to some sort of heartbreak. Um, and then, you know, finding somebody like Tom who's so devoted to her, you know, it, it definitely tracks as, as what some something that someone like Shiv, um, who needs control, would do after, you know, being heartbroken. But again, like, I won't... <laughs> be crushed at all to know what the nature of that heartbreak was. I mean, we could infer that maybe it's Nate, but again, right. like they don't make that clear. it could be it could be somebody yeah. completely different.
2: It seems to me like the affair with Nate was longer ago than the commencement of her relationship with Tom
1: That's um, my just based yeah.
2: based on the way that Nate talks about Tom um, it's where it seems like he's he's uh, only vaguely aware of him before this episode. It seems that if he was if he was Shiv's immediate rebound, then, Nate would have been more aware of him um so I think I think there are his I think Nate's history with her is longer ago but I mean yeah we can segue into talking about that scene which I think is really incredible mostly again for what it like doesn't suggest or doesn't resolve I think um it's this it's this great I think moment of you know the way Sarah Snook plays it as you know as we've talked about before, this person who, for whom control and power and asserting herself are so important in her life and having seen so much of that unravel over the preceding episodes, you know, finding that she all of a sudden is in this position where she has these things that she wanted for herself, the respect of her father, the um, this alliance with a future president you know, all this power and status that she wanted for herself. Um, But she also finds herself in this relationship and being tied down to this guy that she's really not sure that she wants. And yet in that moment, he's able to comfort her in that not knowing. He's still the port in the storm, despite the fact that the storm is their marriage and her not wanting to commit.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that moment where he says, well, yeah, but I do love you. Yeah. And then she starts crying and says, I love you. And they have sex. I mean, like that is like uh, it's just a great button on that scene, you know, because you're right. It it moves the story of their relationship forward without resolving anything. Like, yeah, pers- I, it's, I not, it's not like we think next season they're going to be in a happy monogamous Right. You know, like, you
1: know what they've kind oh no. of resigned, resigned themselves to, respectively. Like Tom <sighs> is going to just ride this out. Like he's not going to leave her. Well, in yeah. fact,
2: I think there's there's a suggestion in the previous episode that um, Shiv has some arrangement in mind, I think, for Tom and her. That, you know, Tom gets moved up out of, you know, right. cruises to get himself away from the scandal. And yeah, maybe he can go to China or something where they won't to see each other as much.
1: I noticed that on a rewatch, Brendan, that seems so cynical. Like, I, I really I, I had <laughs> just like, it cemented how how bad whatever is going what whatever Shiv is doing um to this poor guy is that she really sees him as like completely expendable in her life and I don't know it was it was dark.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean the thing they keep talking and they keep making reference to kind of the plan they have, right Yeah um, and it seems to me like you know what we know of the like part of the plan is is that like Tom is her cat's paw within the company, right? like Tom is fully on board with getting, power and money and everything like that. But actually that Shiv is the one with the real power. Who's really making the decisions and really driving everything. He seems completely okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the
2: moment in episode nine where he, where he says that he'd be willing to just take her surname without any hyphen or <laughs> anything. It's like yeah. Yeah. so great. Um, um,
0: the, the other interesting thing is, you know, I was rewatching that scene, the, I've got a little number, you know, scene uh, and that what it begins with, the inciting moment of that scene is him saying that he loves her so much that he actually does not care about Waystar Royco. And that they can move to New Zealand and raise goats because right. all he wants to do is spend time with her. And that is the thing that actually provokes the confession, which I think is really fascinating because there's two ways to read it, right? One is that she sort of can't in that moment, she can't bear what she's doing to this, you know, this poor guy who has swallowed his own load and loves her. Um, and, or she's like so horrified by this idea and that he doesn't understand his purpose within the plan that she has to like make it clear to him. You know what I mean? And yeah. and so there, there's these sort of like, for all the things become explicit in that scene, there's still some ambiguities there that I find kind of interesting.
2: Yeah, it, it it brings home this idea of Tom as this person who is trapped between two worlds, where he is, you know, he's he is now legally part of the Roy family, which is what he wanted, but he still is not of it and never will be because he is always he's not respected and he's seen as kind of a tool by the other members of the family and even by his wife. But but this scene cements that because we see that the part where you know he does know her better than anyone and she will show this side of herself to him this insecurity this fear the reason that she truly does love him which or as love him as much as she's capable of because he is the one person who can never hurt her and that's why she's with him but the cost of knowing that and the cost of that of having that relationship with her is that he will allow himself to be a tool for whatever else she needs
0: Right. Yeah, totally. And, you know, part of what's going on here is, you know, to circle back something we were talking about earlier, is that Tom isn't fully comfortable with the idea that all human relationships should be transactional and competitive. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, like he sort of. He it's sort fun. Of thinks, yeah. He, well, he thinks it would be cool to be a guy who is like that. But on some level, he isn't. Like he aspires to that. But he also, on some level, knows he isn't actually that guy and is kind of repelled by it. I think, you know, like that's where the kind of why you feel for Tom is that there's some part of him that is like, okay, this might've been like a transactional relationship where I got what I wanted within the company and you got a steady guy. who would always be there for you, but I do actually love you. Like I do actually not care about that. Like I would actually be happy if we quit all this, you know? And so there's a weird way in which even though Tom is, There's all sorts of ways that Tom is gross. He cheated on Shiv. Yeah, everything having to do with destroying the records of the cruise ship. Like It's not like he's a great guy, but you feel for him in a way that you don't for the other characters because you feel like there's a sense that there is some redeemable humanity there.
2: And that's the thing with Greg, too, which we see in this episode, which is that, you know, he bullies Greg, you know, and manipulates him and forces him to do this awful crime, cover up this awful crime. But at the end of that, they go out the next episode. He's like, yeah, we bonded. Right. That's what bonding is. We're friends. We're brothers now. Um, yeah. because we have this bond which is me manipulating you into this awful pact of silence um, yeah. and the and then their last exchange in this episode is that like head nod because now they do have this bond because uh greg forged it out of something that is is more meaningful in you know
0: letting him know about this betrayal right you know to me like if i had to say that what links all the various stories in this episode is that we really do see each of these major characters like coming into their own in some way, you know, whatever transition or shift has gone on in them over the season. And I think some of those are small shifts and some of them are big shifts. You know, we see like all of that culminates here. They become the people they're going to be for the next season, really like in a series of finite moments. And that moment where Tom uh, dresses down um, Shiv's ex Nate, and then nods to Greg you know, is that real moment of, like, this is who I am. Like, I can do this. And Greg sees him sort of come into his power and gives him this nod of solidarity and approval. Just like Shiv when she says to Nate, I'm Shiv fucking Roy. And just like, you know... Uh, yeah, Nate, uh,
1: Nate finally gets his comeuppance in this episode. Very, very cathartic. He's so well, hot so
0: malevolent, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I
2: was uh, <laughs> the joke I made in an earlier episode is that uh, you could have fixed this plot line for me by recasting him with Reed Scott from Veep. Um,
1: <laughs> I was thinking about that because I was rewatching some Veep episodes recently. Brendan, I was thinking about your comment there, and I think I think the problem with that would have been that the sexual tension might have been like too real. I think with Nate, <laughs> like it, it it's <laughs> I don't know, like there's something about Nate that is really loathsome and, and and certainly it would have been the same situation but I think like we're supposed like I think this is the last we see of Nate right
2: yeah yeah, yeah. I mean Nate and this actor you know who I think we've we've slammed a lot on this show and I, I think I think it's 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 more oh, to do not, with like, I think you, the you, writing it's more to do with the writing and the plot line
0: than his, than his performance y- y'all you are, are uh, oh you see this is interesting because I There is something about that guy that I find really fascinating. Because the thing that he has nailed about Nate is how in love with himself Nate is. And and it just radiates off of him in this really fascinating and, I think, completely um, purposeful way. You know, those early episodes, just the way he looks at Shiv is literally like, I am going to look at you until you fuck me. You right. know, like I know that if I just look at you because I'm that good looking and I'm that awesome, and I'm this nate guy from your past, I'm this bad boy. I'm just going to stare at you. And if I do that for long enough, you will have sex with me. And, like, there is something incredible about the presence he brings to that scene. I think the character is loathsome. You know, it's like I want to spend as little time with that character as possible. But I actually find that performance kind of interesting,
1: yeah, I, I don't I think it works for where they they ended up taking it. That's why, like, I think that actor was a good choice. But I think if they actually wanted to sort of evolve it into her having, like, a full-blown affair with him, which I I don't think will happen, it might not have tracked as well. Right, yeah. Because he is obsessed with himself, ultimately. And he sees himself as this virtuous guy, just like so many of the other people on this show do. Totally. Shiv talks him down and almost mocks him because he, he finally says, you know, that he cares about inequality and that's why he's doing what he's doing. And, um, Shiv is finally you know the the mask is pulled off that she doesn't really care about any of this shit with the uh, with uh Gill's ideology or what he cares about. Right. This has all just been to serve her interests within her family,
2: yeah, well, they don't highlight it, but Nate is, of course, a rose emoji fuckboy um of the of the <laughs> highest order um you know, he's a he's a, he's a birdie bro he is he's yeah. a total a, stereotype Shiv is an I, I highlight that, yeah. <laughs>
0: So. Sh- Shiv is a Gil girl, right? They would have to be called Gil girls, like Bernie, because it's Gil, Gil, uh, whatever his strange last name is, Evis, Evis. Yeah,
1: yeah. But Gil, does, I mean, Shiv doesn't even care. Well,
2: she yeah. was upfront about that from the start. Is that she thought it was Jujun, as she says.
1: Yeah, yeah, but she she sort of tried to like you know, convince herself that maybe what she that she was a part of something like this, not just because she wanted to spite her dad. Or she wanted power, but you know, like she she entertained it for a little while, I think. And I think this is this conversation with Nate, and when she says, "I'm Shit Fucking Roy's," when, you know, it it's very very clear that there was never anything altruistic at all about her helping this guy.
2: Totally. Well, yeah. Well, the thing that um, the thing that I'm, I'm thinking of is what Cam said uh, in our Prague episode, which is where he talked about how these characters have. Um, are confronted in that episode by the fact that they have no identity outside of their family Um, and uh, That's what Shiv I think owns up to in this is that she Mm -hmm. um, She has been you know tortured for so long by trying to find an identity outside of her family and yet Longing to be part of it and to assert herself as part of it And so she finally owns that completely here by saying that my identity is bound up in my status and my
0: family name And I am at peace with that and it gives me power. Yeah, absolutely Absolutely. I mean, in a weird way, it's like, you know, Kendall has a similar journey, right, where he tries to define himself in some way outside the family. And after that goes horribly awry in all sorts of ways, you know, he tearfully returns to that, to the identity he had tried to leave behind.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so I, that's, yeah, so
2: that this is where we segue into, of course, the A plot, which is uh, the sort of fate of of Kendall Roy in this episode, um, which is. You know, I, I, I think the the thing that I really admired about this episode when I saw it, because the thing, the thing that I was longing for it to do was to pay off what I sensed was this overarching structure that they had sort of found their way towards, whether it was what they had mapped out from day one or not. But that was essentially this tragic structure where there was something very bad looming, that something, you know, quite... Yeah catastrophic was going to happen, whether it was going to be on the level of, you know, mass death, as the rocket explosion uh, kind of suggests, or whether it was going to be intensely personal um, to Ken. And it ends up being a bit of both, because there is a life that's lost, but it's also this idea of Ken's uh, Ken's hope of finding a, a life, or finding an identity for himself that is his own, that is ultimately lost and is subsumed back into, uh, back into the family and the family business as he embraces his father at the end, which is this very, very I thought dark and very powerful image
0: that the season ends on. Uh, absolutely. Can I can I actually say though in re-watching it what my favorite scene of this episode was in terms of this A-plot is the moment when Kendall makes his way back to the party after covering up the car accident.
1: Yes, agreed, oh, 100%. Yeah. And, he
0: just, and he's so happy to see his family, even his siblings who at that point hate him. You know, like, because he, he first of all, he's has this renewed sense of being alive because he just had a near-death experience, right? But he also thinks he's sort of gotten away with this thing, and he thinks the the hostile takeover is going to go all right. Like, he really has this moment where he is deluded enough to think that everything's gonna everything's gonna come up Millhouse, right, uh, uh, for him and. Just everything about that scene, which is actually has fewer words than the show usually does. You know, it's like much more sparse. And a lot of it's just on his face watching these people. And he seems to like kind of, he seems so content in that moment in this really weird way. And then it just fucking smash cuts to the next morning and he wakes up and he's immediately filled with panic. He's
1: content in that scene, but then you also see that it hasn't fully left his mind yet. The weight of what just happened. No, totally. He starts smiling and dancing with the kids, and then uh, it's so great the way that they shoot it, and then it just sort of pans back to his face, and you see the guilt and the fear, um, you know, kind of take over. But it is, there is, that's, I cried during that scene when he's dancing with his family. I don't know something about it with the Whitney Houston playing in the background, dance with somebody who loves me. Before that, Ken is kind of going from table to table talking to his siblings, trying to get their attention. They're basically telling him to fuck off. He sees the people in his life who genuinely love him. I mean, Rava, not so much, but his kids. And by extension, to some, to some extent, Rava will always love him. But... Oh, I think she genuinely loves him. I, I uh, agree. I'm, I'm a Rava apologist, but I just wanted to qualify that.
0: I don't think she necessarily wants to be in a romantic relationship with him. Right. But I think she is actually the character on the show who genuinely cares about him the most.
1: I think her and, and Peter Friedman I would say yeah. yeah. Um, um,
0: and also that scene with Rava has that incredible moment where he um reaches across the table and you see the blood stain on his cuff. Yeah. Which is like I was just like, you know, for a show that like a lot of the filming is happy accidents, you know. It's like, Jesus, that was a brilliant little visual touch right there. There's just this like little bit of blood on his shirt cuff that no one comments on.
2: Yeah. And if I can indulge in a quick piece of uh, sort of pop music analysis, which is one of my favorite things. But the, uh, the song is uh, I Want to Dance with Somebody by Whitney Houston. But that song was uh, considered a remake of How Will I Know when it came out. And mm-hmm. How Will I Know, I think, is the song that's like very evocative to me to think of that song, which is the question that Ken is always asking himself is like, how do I know that someone that my dad loves me, you know, um,
0: and looking for that validation all the time. Yeah, there's a no. lot of there's a lot of great music choices in this episode because they're all songs that would play at a wedding, but they're right. also all songs that thematically connect to whatever is going on. It's kind of like that um, community episode where there's the ABBA playlist during the zombie yeah. uh, attack, <laughs> yeah. and whatever yeah. ABBA song is playing, the lyrics are relevant to exactly what's going on 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 in the show. But like it's like that, but it's 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 subtler and and more interesting. The Whitney Houston. There's also um, uh, Black Eyed Peas, right? Yep. Before, uh-huh.
1: yeah. Before it goes to Whitney Houston, uh, I got a feeling, which, like, that song, I, I I was in Spain, I think, when that song came out, and every single club, every night, I mean, that song <laughs> was everywhere, and it, it's, I mean, it's catchy, and I think it works for sort of that moment in the scene, when Ken is sort of coming back to the party, and it's like this horrible you know set of events has just taken place and we come back to like a black eyed peas corny wedding song I got a feeling tonight's gonna be a good night and again like it it does kind of thematically tie back to what's going on
2: And uh, uh, real quick, because I know we need to stay with Ken, but the other great song choice is Uptown Girl. When Tom returns to the wedding to uh, dress down Nate, because there's because Uptown Girl is obviously uh, a song about, you know, a working class guy who loves an upper class girl. And uh, that's, you know, that's that has echoes of Tom and Shiv and also this real classist edge that there is to uh, his dressing down Nate, where he's, you know, basically calling Nate a freeloader and telling him to give the free wine back and all that.
0: Yeah, pour it back in the bottle.
1: Yeah, that was... I mean, finally Tom, you know, gets to wave his dick around a little bit in a way that's like...
0: But the way he does it (laughs) is that I will pay someone to break your legs. He doesn't say, if I see you with my wife, if I see you in the same room as my wife again, you know, I'm gonna... We're gonna have words or whatever. It's, I will pay someone to break your legs.
1: Right, and even it's tinged with his sense of, like, entitlement and protection that he gets from being part of his family because he says... Um, and if I go to jail, which I won't,
0: (laughs) which I won't. Yeah.
2: Uh, Matthew McFadden, Emmy clip.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, you know, back to Kendall, I just think that scene, that moment is to me, like, you know, the, the, the scene where he's sobbing, where he, his whole identity crumbles, Right, which I mean is just a masterful bit of acting where he suddenly can't get a sentence out, and he's stammering and he's crying, and they're sort of speaking in this code, and then finally Brian Cox says, "This is, you know, I'm going to be completely honest and explicit with you about what we're going to do." You know, like that that scene obviously is 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 incredible, but it's also incredible in this sort of like very <laughs> what's incredible about it is in the surface, which is not a bad thing. But you know what I love, I just love how many different things are going on in that scene where Kendall wanders back to the wedding. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I I loved the actual walk of him um, kind of like through this marsh and then like these fireworks um, pop up in the background and he's just like hunched over. Um, I I know Brandon in a previous episode said sometimes he looks like the world's smallest man. Yeah. Um, And that's just what that, that moment was, Oh God, it just, it was gutting. And I think it's, interesting to point out, speaking to um, Jeremy Strong's method style, that in that scene, um, you know, the Chappaquiddick scene, he demanded that, like, in between cuts that um, production poured buckets of ice cold water on him so that he would stay freezing the whole time.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, that's very like um, uh, Dustin Hoffman running before his takes on Marathon Man, right? You know, it's like you want to sort of physically <laughs> recreate the what method actors would call the given circumstances of the moment uh, in as much detail as possible. Yeah, Isaac, since we have you here, and since you are writing a book on method acting right now. I am. Yeah, I'm writing a book on the history of the method. It will be called The Method. uh, And it will probably be published in 2020 or 2021.
2: Sooner the better. But could you you possibly give our listeners a concise definition of what method acting exactly is? Because I know there's a lot of sort of misconceptions about it out there. And I know we've tried to explain it on here, but uh, you will probably do a better
0: job. um, you know, I, it's funny because I'm reading this book by Harold Clerman where he tries to concisely explain to the reader what it is, and I, maybe I should go get that book and just read his explanation. But um, <laughs> part of the confusion here is that the method refers to multiple different things. Um, I'm going to take the broadest definition possible, which is the method is the various adaptations of the teachings of a Russian director, actor, and theorist named Konstantin Stanislavsky. Um, the the adaptations of his teachings. Uh, that were made in the United States by various acting teachers, mostly in the mid twentieth century. Um, the two most, the three most famous of which are Sanford Meisner, uh, Stella Adler, and Lee Strasberg. The sort of second definition of the method is very specifically Lee Strasberg's version of this, all, all of all of these ideas. Right. The main thing that um, Stanislavski was kind of talking about a lot in his in it had to do with. How to um, enable the actor, how to help the actor to imaginatively enter into the given circumstances of a moment so that they were in some way experiencing what was happening to the character, you know, while expressing the character in the words of the playwright, uh, you know, in their scene. You know, the acting of the 19th century was very presentational. It was very declamatory and he was sort of existing in rebellion against that and so he developed a whole a whole system which he called the system for uh, breaking down a part into its components, into figuring out what the character wanted at any given moment to creating the kind of emotional texture of the part and to um, use one's imagination to live spontaneously within what is happening to the character. That is kind of fundamentally what the goal of The method is there's lots of other stuff. Most famously, there is the technique of, uh, of um, recalling emotional states by using uh, by essentially triggering yourself um, uh, to use sort of past experiences you have had that are akin to those emotional states in order to um, summon the emotional state that the character is going through Um, where you see it with Jeremy strong. If you read interviews with him is, is he takes it to this sort of other direction that uh, Marlon Brando actually kind of pioneered where, you know, there's all these stories about how Marlon Brando would kind of write his lines on the set. So he didn't have to memorize them. Like in the Godfather, he posted his lines at various places where the audience can't see. So that he could, he would, he would, he would read them instead of knowing them. It's not that Marlon Brando had trouble memorizing the lines; he did that so that his readings would feel spontaneous, you know. Um, and so, what uh, I know that from interviews with Strong that that with him, it's a lot about like he doesn't want to rehearse, right? He doesn't do setups, he doesn't do a lot of rehearsal. He wants to just like come into the room as the character and just figure out what the character would do in that moment um and the and the camera is going to capture it you know um that is not actually what stanislavski was trying to do cuz stanislavski's dealing with a written play that has to be performed every night right but as the method moves into cinema those kind of improvisatory how do i create a spontaneous moment in front of the camera becomes more and more an important aspect of it um and so uh, uh a lot of it also has to do with physically trying to create um Again, the given circumstances, you see that with, you know, Dustin Hoffman really going on runs so that he's sweaty and out of breath and tired instead of acting like he's sweaty out of breath and tired. He really is the thing or, uh, you know, actors starving themselves and losing a ton of weight for a part or in this case, getting, you know, doing the ice bucket challenge over and over and over again so that he really was cold so that he was never faking being cold on camera.
2: So in other words, um, you think this is very close to what Jared Leto does as the Joker?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I'm not at the point in my research where I'm really talking that much about the modern day. But, yeah, I mean, like, Jared Leto, I think, uh, is almost like a parody of The Method. You know? Yeah.
1: yeah. Um,
0: I don't know that, like, um, Jeremy Strong is walking around off camera acting like Kendall Roy. Um, I literally don't know. If he's, like, you know, when they're on breaks and he's getting a cup of coffee, is he, like, coming up to Brian Cox and being like, Hey, Dad. I want you You know I don't think he's actually doing that. In fact, I I read an interview with him, and what he really does is he kind of like goes back to his trailer and he ignores other people, and then he just comes in and does his thing and then leaves. You know, so he protects his performance. That way. There is a thing towards the present day era where this, it almost feels like a parody of the method and its ideas that you have these actors who never break character at any point. You know, Daniel Day Lewis is pretty famous for that. Tom Hardy, uh, Jared Leto. I don't think it's coincidental that it's mostly men um, because there's something very butch about being like, I stayed in character for six months. You know, um, uh, and that's taking things to like a rather extreme degree. And I don't get the sense that he does that, but he also like there are very specific kind of things that he wants and doesn't want on set that have to do with being as spontaneous and unrehearsed and letting the character kind of just like come alive as possible.
2: Yeah, and I've I've talked about this a bunch of times already, but I feel like in this final scene, you know, there's, there's a real element where you can tell that they really... Had to just kind of try to capture it as it was happening. Where there's this very weird, almost arbitrary high angle that uh, the scene fades out on um, that they cut to previously in the scene when Marcia and her son are leaving. It's it's, it's a very strange shot. It doesn't because it just it doesn't seem intentional. Um, it seems more like coverage um, than than anything. Like they were just trying to set up a couple of of angles and just they would they would get the scene and they would
0: get the performance there and yeah, figure it out with what they had. Oh, yeah. Although I do think there's a couple of like pretty deliberate shots in it. There's the long shot of his face as he breaks down while Brian Cox is talking Yeah. Um, that like clearly that was that seems quite deliberately planned in a like very specific way. You know, just like actually in this episode, I feel like there's a lot of lines in it where I'm like, I bet that was not an improvised line. That was a scripted, you know, a scripted thing very specifically you know uh, a lot of shiv's lines you know um when she says i've had a little number or whatever that line was i was like oh that's such an artful way to put that you know but then obviously yeah, I was
1: wondering about that line like it didn't at first i didn't know what she was talking about
0: yeah yeah exactly and you know in this finale like it has a very specific structure these scenes have to do a very specific thing because there's a lot of plot that has to get resolved you know but i did love but there's a lot of little wonderful grace notes within that as well like um when he has the conversation with the waiter about whether he should kidnap him or not
1: yes oh <laughs> yeah. my god i love that conversation
0: cuz cuz you know something's going to go horribly wrong and you're like wait is right. this going to turn into a serious conversation with the kidnapping and then instead the car accident happens you know I forgot what I was gonna say. We should. We should. We can just boop if you can edit me so I like, sound more coherent. That would be great. Now it's uncut. This is method podcasting. God damn it. <laughs> I should have broken this down into its component parts and figured out what I wanted in each individual moment. I mean, you know, so just to just to circle back to that though, you know, like really at the heart of it is that you are not living as your character all the time, but like when you are the actor, you know, you are fully concentrated on what is going on in front of you. You are fully in character. You are spontaneous in the moment. You are thinking about what do I want? You know, what what do I want in this moment? What is in my way of getting that? And what am I going to do about it? Which there's terms of art for all three of those things. But that's really what you're thinking about. Like, what is the action of what I am saying? How am I sort of summoning up these kind of emotional Moment.
2: Yeah, I mean, the the scene with the waiter, we talked about this in the pilot episode, how it's foreshadowed by, you know, Logan saying that I never want to see this guy again after he uh, spills a drink on him. And that being, you know, literalized later by uh, Logan almost accidentally wishing him out of existence. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, which is very, very, very spooky, very suggestive. That whole sequence of events that leads them into that card into this, you know, as we've said, very Chappaquiddick-esque moment. Although I think the show does kind of, you know, quite pointedly show Ken trying to go back for him and, you know, making an effort to save this man who he can't find. He seems that he's like not able to find him in the water afterwards. he
1: tries, but like he could have tried more
2: oh i'm not disputing that <laughs> no,
1: no i know, I know, I know yeah. you're not but like yeah. yeah when people watch that scene it's like it's obviously going to be something that that comes up like oh could you have done it because you think about yourself in that scenario like would you have been able to yeah. have swam for that long and been able to see the problem is like that it was so it was so dark um yeah
2: yeah but... and i mean you know i yeah, I don't know what else Ken would be expected to do in that situation except to not do what he does, which is just to pretend it never happened. But I mean that right is...
1: and like slink back and try and like,
2: <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that is why I think Roman's plotline is in this episode is that it's 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 this very eerie, funny um parallel to what's happening where both Roman and Ken make these decisions where they are responsible for this awful thing happening, but they just sort of wash their hands and right. They back to their lives because they have always been taken care of and they have always been able to walk away from things and why should this be any different?
1: Right, <laughs> Ken, Ken's whole sequence of events that that leads him to that car ride are it's so self-indulgent and again I'm very sympathetic to the fact that Ken is an addict like I'm unilaterally sympathetic to people who struggle with substance issues but the frustrating thing about Ken is that he can't just fucking settle for what he gets. And we see this over and over again, you know, throughout the season, that, like, there's some instinct within him where he has to get exactly what he wants. And um, so so this all starts off with Stewie sort of, again, um, setting some things in motion, very Shakespearean character, like Isaac described earlier, um, always kind of has his hand in something big that's going on. So Stewie and Ken have executed the bear hug and, you know, now they're kind of going you know, to wait and see what happens. Logan is on, on defense trying to figure things out, talking to the president. And Ken is feeling celebratory and they've been doing coke. They did coke earlier in the day before the reception um, to kind of hype themselves up. And, I, you know, I talked about... I think the last episode about the Ken's like choice of drugs and how he copes with with those decisions and and what kind of drugs he wants to do to sort of um, bring upon the mood or emotional state that'll be conducive to whatever goal he's trying um, you know to to achieve. Usually it's something related to to business and in this case, he um, you know, he meets up with the waiter who's been kicked out by dad and um well after that great conversation with greg i don't know if we want to go back to that um where greg sort of tells him hey (laughs) i know what happened with the death pit and the parks department the cruises you know ken's reaction to it is very funny he's like very bemused that greg is pulling this card um because oh yeah yeah Yeah.
2: which is a great echo of the way that Logan reacts in episode eight when Greg says that uh, Tom bullies him, and Logan's just like kind of <laughs> raises his eyebrows and goes like, "I didn't think he had it in him." You know, he's just <laughs> <almost> <laughs> amused to see other people, you know, abusing their power in the same way that he does.
1: So Ken, so Stewie, in that moment, um, so Ken, this is the second time around. They've it's it's in the evening, the party's well underway, and so Ken is kind of. You know, he's jonesing and he looks at Stewie and he's like, so, you know, you have, you know, can I have just a little bit? And, you know, they've been doing coke, like I said, and Stewie in that moment. And I don't know, Isaac, if you can speak to this, like about just Arian's acting and what's going on there, um, because we've we've talked about this a lot. Just we, obviously Stewie had coke, right? Yes. There's no way that he that he didn't have coke. Like,
0: Yeah. Yes, absolutely no, no, no. Uh, he 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 absolutely had uh, so it seems uh, like in that moment I'm
1: he's make he he's like he's he's got this calculus where he sees Ken kind of fiending <clears throat> in a way that's less celebratory and more reminiscent of somebody who's an addict, which you know he knows Ken is, and, right. and Ken, is, Ken is sort of like, yeah, he it's it's not just about parting. It's like, okay, you know, Ken needs to get high because he's an addict and. Addicts need to get high. They don't just do it for fun. So Stewie, it feels like in that moment, you know, he says, well, we have a big day tomorrow. Like, what is his rationale there? What's his calculus? Like, is he trying to, uh, you know, look out for Ken? Or it's it's self-interest because he doesn't want Ken to, you know, be on a bender all night and then not be able to handle his shit when... Yeah,
0: I don't think that Stewie cares about Ken at all. I, I mean, I, I don't. I I just don't. I don't think. I mean, I, I mean. One of the things that's sort of delightful in a weird way about Stewie is, I mean, he's kind of a sociopath in a lot of ways. You know, like uh, Stewie is. Yeah,
1: and he's not. He doesn't like lie about it (laughs) he doesn't
0: lie about it no that's what's interesting about him so you know stewie tracking stewie and substances over the course of this season is really fascinating there's the scene where stewie's doing coke in front of him in front of kendall back when kendall's sober he's like what are you doing so there's this thing where like stewie is trying to kind of has always been trying to tempt kendall into falling off the wagon um which is not something that when you care about someone that you do, you know right. what I mean? Whether he's been doing it because he literally just does not care about Kendall's well being or because he thinks it will make Kendall easier to manipulate, he has been engaging in this kind of like, hey man, come join me on the dark side and drink and do Coke. And then, but what he sees in that moment, I think pretty clearly, is that it's out of control now. Like he can't control Kendall's substance abuse, you know? He can't just like turn it off. That, that, that there is this other thing going on with Kendall. And so, like, what, what he tries to do is to not, um, not abet Kendall's kind of self-destruction there. Because he really does actually need him sharp the next day. Right. You know? That he it, really does it's need... It's self-interested, him really though. Yeah, I think it is completely motivated out of self-interest. I don't get any sense that Stewie cares about other people and we get a sense that pretty early on when we, when we see that moment where he's um, meeting with Larry Pine on the park bench, like two cold war spies,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, like, like pretty season. soon after, yeah, you know, pretty soon after Stewie is introduced as a character, we see that he has this completely other agenda that has nothing to do with, you know, the health of the Roy family or Waysar Royko. Yeah. And what
2: I love about the, the bear hug as this sort of elaborate, structuring metaphor for what's happening to these characters is that the way stewie reveals himself in episode eight to be a front to be a you know a a shell uh to house sandy is to basically acknowledge that he has no identity right that he is a russian doll that he is another person and that he's not only not ken's friend he's not anybody and he's fine with that
0: yeah totally Totally, and you know it's interesting. Also, of course, that you bring up the bear hug because, of course, what does the episode end with, right? Part of the big, <laughs> yeah, precisely. But a <laughs> big bear hug between father and son. Papa bear, know. yeah. Papa, bear. yeah. I think You're we my, have to number one boy. <laughs>
2: I think oh, we have okay. to chart our way back to that to that final scene. Um, I want to bring in briefly the uh, the scene of the confrontation uh, between Ken uh, and his father and his siblings midway through the episode, where everyone is very pissed at uh, Ken for what they see, you know, justifiably as a betrayal uh, in trying to take over the company and take it out of family control by sending and, it over and to suddenly Sandy.
1: suddenly Shiv is so like. <laughs> precious about her wedding clutching pearls like on my wedding day meanwhile like the whole time she could care less about this entire event
2: yeah yeah and in another godfather reference i'm glad that you brought in uh the godfather isaac because i think the ending is so evocative of the ending of the godfather and uh, yeah it's it's a very like on the day of my daughter's wedding kind of thing um
0: yeah exactly exactly
2: um and I, i that scene is so devastating because um Ken uh, the, again the big a big reason that Ken is doing this is not because he has any ideas we find out that he doesn't when Logan just asked him was like why what do you want to do what do you want to do with the company and he just sputters incoherently in and things, things dad good
0: things. Says.
2: Uh, good things. exactly he can't even come up he can't even muster the energy to say pivot to video um He has nothing. And uh, he's he's hoping that, you know, taking this stand will make his father respect him. And instead, it only sort of solidifies his father's contempt for him, which is why that 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 scene is so brutal, the way that he, you know, Logan calls him curdled cream, right? A hothouse flower, which is a great little monologue that Cox delivers uh, quite, quite sadistically.
0: Yeah. And Ken's response is, of course, you're a beast, which is a word we've heard a bunch of. Uh, a bunch of times yes. throughout the throughout the season.
1: A bunch of times. It's said in episode 9. I think it's said in episode... Tom says it early on, I'm not some beast. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or
0: maybe... <To> Greg, <laughs> he
2: says that, yeah. He says, Greg, I'm not he some He might have
1: beast. said that in episode 6. But yeah, another example of, of the language that they repeat throughout Succession. I love it. Beast is one of them, for sure. And I like how... Uh, we didn't early on when when Ken introduces the bear hug to Logan, and um, we've talked a lot on this podcast about how the Roy kids, especially Ken, especially Shiv, tend to talk about themselves in um, revolutionary terms. It's it's sort of related to this new media pivot to video stuff, but they they do use actual revolutionary language several times throughout the season. Um, and Ken's sort of final like plea to his father in this is that. Um, he wants to do good things and and Logan just has this great line, Brian Cox um, delivering it so well where he says, um, you know, do good things, be a nurse you know, and and that just (laughs) was a great moment um, because yeah, it's true, like what you're not going to do good things so long as you're part of this and this has been a consistent theme and especially the last few episodes that we've talked about but um, Logan gets it. And then in that later scene with the siblings, he mentions like, you know, maybe go collect sport- sports cars, like do something that some <laughs> rich person who doesn't have these like ill-fated, just misguided dreams has just do something else. This is clearly not working for you. Um, right? And that's before the whole Chappaquiddick thing, which, you know, again, just confirms it. And but yeah. That's a, he calls out all of his siblings in that scene too, which is uh
0: And everything he says in that scene is accurate. That's is. that that is like part <laughs> when of when they call each
1: other out, they're pretty accurate.
0: Yeah, but, I mean, you know that that uh, Roman couldn't get a job managing a restaurant
1: without yeah. You
0: know, nepotism. Yeah, but each you know each one of those things is is completely accurate. And then folded in it, the like cherry on the Sunday of that scene is that that's where. Um, that is the moment uh, where Connor is like, I need the family's resources to run for president. And everyone's like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, there's just this, like, like in the midst of all this where everyone thinks they kind of know the score. And then you have this kind of agent of chaos who's like, also, I'm running for president. <laughs> like, are you are you joking? You know.
2: Yeah, the great objection that Roman raises is like, why not? Like, Connor, because generally speaking, people don't like you.
0: And he's like, "That's that's not true." Yeah,
2: <laughs> he's like, "Shut up, shut up, I love you, shut up."
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I really hope we get some of Connor's presidential run in season two. Yeah,
2: uh-huh.
0: uh, or there's desperate sure. attempts to stop him from doing it. Um,
2: <laughs> yeah, Logan tried to sabotage Connor's presidential run. That would be great. Oh man.
0: Yeah. Exactly. I mean, but the other thing that's also fascinating is, you know, like there is no. So two of the kids are inside the company, right? Kendall and Roman. Uh, Kendall leaves and comes back. But you know what I mean? They are they are in the company. And two of the kids are outside of the company, although with Shiv it's part of this long-term strategy to get back in in a more powerful position. But Connor really does not want to be part of the company. You know, like so when you first meet Connor you have this idea of like, well maybe he's gotten away and created maybe he's a weirdo, but maybe he's created this life that kind of works, right? But by the end of the season, you're like, actually, no, he's this just incredibly selfish, stupid, libertarian wackadoodle, you know, um,
1: like actively harmful political
0: right. ideas. Uh, well, <laughs> you know, there's there's a there's a great moment where he's explaining the uh, onanism and usury,
1: usury and then yeah. as
0: as the camera wanders away from him, he says, "Oh, and I don't want to pay any taxes." <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> weird how that yeah, always comes that's up the
1: bottom line <laughs> yeah
0: and i think although i can't make it out but i bet if i have like a really good post like sound mixing suite you know you hit, some of his political monologuing is embedded in the audio mix after that and i bet there's other kind of like gop talking points in there but anyway yeah. what, what i was gonna say is that like you know there as funny as the show is like these people are doomed you know at least yes. on a soul level. I mean, they'll right. be very rich and they'll never go to jail for anything. I I don't think this is a show where evil people get their comeuppance, you know. But like, like part of what's going on in this show is that these people are doomed. You can try to escape like Waystar Royco, but you cannot actually escape the Roy family. And the Roy family is fundamentally toxic because it is capitalism, you know. And so like these people are all there's none of them are going to get uh, an ending where they're like a complete and well-adjusted human being. It's just not possible. Like no one, the only person we can sort of hope maybe escapes with their soul attacked is Rava, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I mean that's what that's
2: what the finale is is um that's why I think it it's it's such a great complete ending to the story that the first season tells about Ken because it it really does solidify this analogy of the company and the family and this idea of the corporate family as this uh, cycle, this closed loop system that is unending and unbreakable and just will swallow all of them. Um, And that's uh, that's where I see also the echoes of you know, the ending of the Godfather, which is not just about, you know, Michael rejoining, you know, the family business and taking his, his father's place, which obviously, you know, quite crucially doesn't happen here because the Godfather, you know, Don Vito is still in control at the end of succession. Um, but you know, it's that door that closes, right? That the door remains shut and the decisions that happen in that room will continue being made. And that's the thing, um, that Kay is shut out of at the end of the Godfather. And that's what Ken is shut out of is he won't be in that room. Um, Where, you know, his fate is decided. It'll always be decided by these forces that keep turning without him.
0: Yeah. And it will also, you know, because his dad is this kind of absolute monarch, right? Like he doesn't have to let anyone else into that room. Well, maybe it's his wife as part of it as well.
2: But, you know,
0: (laughs) great payoff
2: to the Marsha storyline, by the way, I think, you know, uh, as um, you know, they don't really explicitly pay it off. But I think this uh, what's suggested in that scene is that Marsha serves this kind of spy master function uh, for Logan, where she's, you know, as we've what was suggested before is that she had eyes on Shiv and she seems to have eyes on Ken in this episode. And her son is part of that somehow, which is, you know, very,
0: very chilling and another suggestion of uh, her history that we don't know about. Yeah, well, you know, at the beginning of the season, the question is, does Marsha have some ulterior motive? She's trying to keep them from seeing, you know, she tries to keep them from seeing Logan. Is she trying to steal all their money? You know, what's going on, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. But, you know, in, in a way, what it feels like to me by the end of the season is like what the kids don't want to admit is that she actually is an extension of their dad. Like the things that freak them out about her is that she is actually like a very well suited partner to their father. It is not clear to me that she has some ulterior manipulating him agenda. She seems like his real partner in doing this stuff. Yeah, she's very firmly in his corner. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and they genuinely love each other, something that we've, I think, all had a consensus on.
0: Yes, I think that is absolutely true. But, you know, because. Um, those kids are all incapable of having authentic relationships. They can't understand that this might be an authentic relationship. Right. And then the additional twist on it within <laughs> the show is that if it's an authentic relationship, given what we know of Logan Roy, then it's an authentic relationship between two monsters. Yeah. Oh yeah. She's a she is a very evil person. I think that's <laughs> quite clear. <laughs> yeah. I mean it's sort of like It's clear how... at
1: first. Yeah.
0: It's sort of like how, you know, regardless of whether you you like these books or this show, you know, one of the things that Game of Thrones was doing that I find really interesting is the heroic undying love story was between two siblings who murder people. You know, like, (laughs) it's doing something with a heroic fantasy trope to make that the undying love, you know, and similarly to have, like, the only real relationship between two human beings who understand each other and love each other, um completely be between Logan and Marsha is like a really kind of amazing mindfuck. It's like, of course their kids can't accept that.
2: Oh yeah. And it's again, it's just like, why, why this person and not any one of us, why does dad love her in a way that he can't love any of us?
0: Right. Yes. And, and, you know, there's also this other additional thing, which I think this is something that's a little bit different from The Godfather and from a lot of gangster stories. And, you know, gangster stories are also often about successions and politics and and whatnot, uh, um, is, you know, usually the father doesn't want the kids to follow in their footsteps. They're doing this so that the kids can have some other life. Mm, Yeah. Uh, Don, Don Vito wants to send Michael away. Like it is a failure on Vito's part that Michael takes over the family. You know, he, he doesn't want him to do that. There's always this thing of like, I'm doing this so that my kids can become lawyers and politicians and whatever, you know? Um, And I do think that we don't exactly know what Logan wants from his kids. You put, you, you, you noted this, uh, uh, Brendan, that, that like, You know he he wants them close to him, but he also wants to destroy them. But he also wants to build them up to take his place. And like Logan, because of his egomania, can't quite figure out what he wants his kids to do when he's gone.
1: Yeah, Um, he he has a great line to this point in that scene with all the siblings when he says, "What have you had your entire life that I didn't give you?" He said, "I spoiled you, and now you're fucked, and I'm sorry." And, like, that's such a great, like, string of words, you know? Like, he he really is conflicted. And I I talked about this in Australis about how Ken calls Logan out for being jealous of his kids. I think because Logan didn't have, like, Logan has everything in the world that we could possibly conceive of. But what Logan didn't have and what he'll never be able to have is a happy childhood, um, a safe childhood. And he feels like that's what he's given his kids by virtue of giving them... So much in terms of material wealth. Um, and that's true in a way. Yes, these kids never had to worry for anything and have experienced privilege beyond what anybody probably should. But what we know is that they didn't have happy childhoods either. Um, and yeah, it, it puts them in this very interesting position where they're trying to have a corrective experience with dad. They're doing it through different means. Ken is really, you know, single minded about. making his name in the company whatever you know shiv has her her other ways but she's coming into the fold rome is just there but but yeah i think logan is conflicted he doesn't know if he wants his kids to be happy you know he has this lingering sort of unconscious resentment towards them um for the way he feels like you know they're fuck-ups or they're ungrateful when he's given them so much
0: right 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 and then at the same time You know, it's weird. It's like he has the opposite feelings about them, too, right? It's like he feels competitive with his kids in this weird way, so he wants to destroy them. But also, like, he does want them to do their own thing. Like, there was, I feel like, a 5% chance that Kendall trying to hostily take over the the company would earn his dad's respect. Because at least he's doing something on his own, you know? Uh, uh, unlikely, but there's like a couple percent chance, you know? But like he's he's just, you know, the, the, the interesting mystery about Logan is like what does he actually want from these people that he continually forces to be in his orbit, even though you know, on some level he loves them and on some level he, I think, despises them.
1: Right, and actively tries to push them away and act like he doesn't need them. Yeah. When he does actually really need them, and we see that you know, with Ken.
0: Right. I mean, one of the things that Ken provokes with the hostile takeover thing is how badly Logan actually does need, like if the siblings collectively turned on Logan, right. they could get rid of him. Like the thing is, is that they can't ever band together and do anything, but he is actually in a very weak position. It is only through the force of his personality that he's staying on top of that company. If those four kids got together and were like, dad, you have to step down. They actually do have the power to make that happen.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and I think that I think the generational conflict is a good is as good a way as any to understand, you know, the way that he views his his kids. Um, where it's just this, it's like this contempt almost for you know millennials or whatever. Although they're not actually millennials, any of them, I think. But uh, at the same time, he has this he has this need because he can't trust anybody else outside of his family. Right? He he is. Uh, he's he's basically incapable of trust, but he can ex- he can extend it just as far as his immediate family um, to be able to uh, to to rely on other people. But there's also, I think, a model I think in what's uh, said about Ken's history at the company for basically what he wants them to do, which is that he wants them to be uh, at his side, but also off in Indonesia or whatever. Right. Yep. Exactly. One thing I know that we didn't mention, Isaac, uh, was. Um, uh, Coriolanus, which I think is another good parallel in terms of uh, plot to yeah, what happens it, in the latter half it, of this season.
0: Well, And someone Matt Zoller site said on Twitter that Coriolanus um, figures somewhat prominently in the second season. Like the actual play itself. Ooh. So I, I'm very curious about that. Um, I actually just saw Coriolanus at uh, Shakespeare in the Park last week. I actually think it is sort of an underloved truly brilliant, you know, Shakespeare play. Um, It's just difficult to explain. Like the world, you know, because it, it is actually the only, you know, it's the only Shakespeare play that's about an actual election. Yeah. Um, and uh and about class conflict within that election. So it's a you know it's a play that's set in ancient Rome and it's where the 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 plebeians go on strike during a a war um in order to get political representation and grain, which they do in, uh, they get the Tribunes, the Tribune of the Plebs, and they get what's called the Corndole, which is a subsidy for grain so they don't starve to death. And then in the midst of that, there is this war hero named Coriolanus, who um, is is actually very authentic and honest, but what he's authentic and honest about is that he despises the poor and he wants to take away their political power. And so um, when he runs for consul, which is essentially like president, when he runs for for consul, there's sort of all of this conniving to make sure that he does not get the seat and is in fact banished he then uh, and this is the sort of shades of kendall roy once he's banished he um joins with the enemies of rome and comes within you know a couple miles of destroying and sacking the city um uh, uh with the volskis with the volskians um, and then at the last minute, his um, wife and mother and child persuade him to not do it so as to spare his own family's life. So there is a way in which the plot of this final episode, and that you have the exile. Who is leaving the banished community and banding together with his um, former enemies to destroy the people who he loves, and then they make this kind of appeal to him, and he he sort of calls it back. Is very much what's going on in this episode. It, it should be noted, of course, that Coriolanus ends with Coriolanus being stabbed to death like a thousand times by a gang of people. So it doesn't <laughs> end well. It doesn't end well for him. This kind of. Um, you know, when he tries to take it back, but at least Rome has saved.
2: But, and you also, know, of
0: course, uh, Brian
2: Cox uh, is great in the uh, Ray Fiennes film adaptation of Coriolanus.
0: Yeah, I sh- which is also filmed very much like Succession, actually. They have very similar filming styles. I will say, if you've never seen it, listeners, uh, the Ray Fiennes film of Coriolanus is like one of the best ever adaptations of Shakespeare to film, I think. Uh, and it was very, um, went very under the radar when it came out, I feel like. Uh, yeah, that, that's
2: absolutely true. I only caught up with it uh, just recently, actually. Yeah. Uh, it,
0: it is. It is. It's really brilliant. Uh, it's really. It's just a really brilliantly done adaptation of uh, of the play. I think. But yeah, you know, it, it definitely has this thing of like, well, if you are going to get rid of me, I'm going to come over and I'm just going to just. I'm going to meet with your enemies, and then together we're going to destroy everything. Can I can I say one closing thing? I know I've talked a lot today, but I am the guest. <laughs> uh, the title.
1: Yes,, oh.
0: uh, I don't know if you looked up what the title's a reference to, but it's um uh, from John Berryman's Dream Songs. oh, okay.
2: I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't parse it, but yeah, it's, can it's, you elaborate on that?
0: Well, I mean, I have the poem right here, actually. Uh, I looked it up. I was like, isn't that from a poem? and so can, uh, can I read it? I, uh, yes. Really? Yeah, I love I love when we get to read poetry on this podcast, okay, there we go. So <laughs> this is dream song twenty nine and I think the episode Austerlitz is a reference to the Zebald novel, right? Uh, We
2: took it as just a Napoleonic reference.
0: Oh, maybe so. Um, Anyway, so this is Dream Song 29 by John Berryman. There sat down once a thing on Henry's heart, so heavy, if he had a hundred years and more and weeping, sleepless, in all them time, Henry could not make good. Starts again always in Henry's ears, the little cough somewhere, an odor, a chime. And there is another thing he has in mind, like a grave Sienese face a thousand years would fail to blur the still profiled reproach of. Ghastly, with open eyes, he attends blind. All the bells say, too late. This is not for tears. Thinking. But never did Henry, as he thought he did, end anyone, and hacks her body up and hide the pieces where they may be found. He knows. He went over everyone. And nobody's missing. Often he reckons in the dawn them up. Nobody is ever missing. That's creepy.
1: Wow. Yeah. I had no idea about that context. And that's, I mean, I I love the title for me. It was like, I don't know something about it. It felt, it did feel poetic. So it, it makes sense. But yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, the idea that, you know, in some ways no one is ever missing because they weigh heavily on your heart with all of your regret of of everything you've done, you know, is is I think like a very kind of relevant thing to what's going on in, in this, right. this episode, you know. Right,
1: because the person who's actually missing in this episode is this, you know, innocent boy. Of course, he's not missing because Logan is there and, and Logan has tabs on everybody and puts the pieces together, but... Yeah, I mean, this sort of tragedy that we don't really get a lot about the in sort of terms of like direct impact of the Roy's harm. And I know Brendan referred to it earlier that we talked about in the pilot that it was foreshadowed. But yeah, when um when Logan makes the point in the morning when he's convincing Ken to sort of go along with his plan that he's been able to construct because of his you know married connections with law enforcement and and whomever else that he needed to to figure this out with says you know a rich kid kills a boy he'll never be anything else right so and that's the moment when he's you know he basically is saying he knows like this is what's going down they they cloak it and sort of you know vague language so as not to admit and and ken's trying to you know sort of deny and and you know he's falling apart emotionally um but then logan says that and you know again the show is not super intentional about hammering home its politics um but in that moment you know it's it's a very powerful line to, to to end the season on
2: I mean it's but yeah this this whole this whole storyline in this scene is yeah just so intensely I think just like personally moving and that the thing that uh, really hits me about that poem you just read Isaac is that that first line where uh, it, uh the the line is there sat down once a thing on Henry's heart you know that like that there is this one thing um that Ken is going to carry with him um you know if there's one thing that he is going to you know remember his whole life it is it is this thing and this thing that will I think in this scene, and you know, and you see it in that prior scene with his family, where he's dancing. You know that that this that this pain and this thing that he caused is, you know, the realization of that is the closest thing to really being human because the thing he's guarded from his whole life is consequences, and that's what's being sealed up in this episode. Is he's being wrapped up again in this shield from having to face his actions, but that facing it and that that pain of that knowing what he did. Um, is what can make him human, and that's what he's he's protected from. Again, in the end, is is that becoming human? Yeah, he's doomed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's sad. Yeah,
2: I I I just love the the totalizing tragedy of it. I I'm a, I'm a sucker for just like a really well you know neatly wrapped up um, tale of doom and portent, and that is what this <laughs> this season of television is. I think in the end.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean it's a really perfect ending. and such a you I mean I'm very much looking forward to the second season, but if for some reason for low ratings or whatever it had been cancelled after one season, you'd be like, that was an incredibly satisfying self-contained story.
2: Yeah. Yeah, precisely. Sure. You know. I hear I hear my roommate uh and some friends watching it next door actually. <laughs> oh good.
1: <laughs> Gotta recruit.
2: That's right. That's right. Amazing. Well, I guess that I guess that wraps up um our our episode about uh, episode 10, the finale and uh, we, it's, did uh, <laughs> we did it <laughs> We did it We got through the whole first season And uh, we'll be back um, with uh, An episode, uh, recap of Season 2, episode 1, who knows what's going to happen They're, they're going to sell They're going to sell Valter to another private Equity firm <laughs> um, Greg is going to uh, Cancel Filmstruck
0: uh, <laughs> well, I bet we'll hear the theme song in a bunch of Different modes and contexts <laughs> yeah.
2: Roman gets in a fight with uh Martin Scorsese over an unfinished Michael Powell film or something like that. That sounds right, yeah.
1: <laughs> and Shiv um, is getting getting in the business. That's what we know.
2: Yeah, we yeah, we still need we still need Laura Dern as Marianne Williamson in season two.
1: I'm praying I, on oh it. My God.
2: Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> I am there. <laughs> Isaac, thank you so much for joining us. We, uh, I think you were the first person we asked to be on the oh. show. And we made you wait a long time, but we've been really
0: looking forward to it, and I'm so glad we did it. I, yeah, thank I you hope so I, much. I hope I lived up to your expectations, and thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah, definitely exceeded them. Thank you. We really appreciate it.
0: Great. I, I loved it. It was a blast.
1: Awesome. Welcome back anytime. You about
0: yeah, I'll come back next season and talk about something.
1: Well, cool. before you do anything right
2: Alright folks, till next time.
1: Dig
0: this. Everybody plays the fool. Sometimes there's no exception to the rule.